This morning's first reading is from Mark, chapter 16, verses 9 to 20, the longer ending of Mark. Now, after he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went out and told those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After this, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking to the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Later, he appeared to the eleven themselves. They were sitting at the table, and he upbraided them for their lack of faith and stubbornness because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved, but the one who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. By using my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes in their hands. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and proclaimed the good news everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the signs that accompanied it. Mark chapter 16, verse 8, the shorter ending of Mark. And all that had been commanded them, they told briefly to those around Peter. And afterwards, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west, the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Amen. From the book of Psalms, chapter 119, verses 18 to 20. Open my eyes, so that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I live as an alien in the land, do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your ordinances at all times. Well, do you like a happy ending? If you do, then the original ending of Mark's Gospel is probably not for you. As we saw last week on Easter Sunday, Mark finishes his Gospel with something of a cliffhanger. The women are seen running away from the empty tomb and are too afraid even to speak. Not, you might think, the most natural place to end the story. And if you think that, you aren't alone. You may be interested to know that there have been two serious attempts to fix this within the manuscript tradition. And there are actually four possible variations available to us for the ending of Mark's Gospel. The most ancient and reliable of our sources, including the wonderful Codex Sinaiticus, which you can go and see not far from here in the British Library, 
Have, has anybody ever been? It, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. You can just go into the British Library and they've got the, the Treasures of the Library exhibition permanently open. You can go in up the stairs, it's on the left. And there at the back is Codex Sinaiticus. Just astonishing. Discovered in, uh, the, um, in the monastery on Mount Sinai. Uh, an almost entirely complete uh, version of the New Testament written in Greek. And it's, it's the basis, along with Alexandrinus and Vaticanus, of, of and most of our knowledge of the earliest texts of the Bible. Well, Codex Sinaiticus and others as ancient as it agree that Mark's Gospel, in its original and earliest form, did indeed finish at verse 8. The women were afraid and they didn't run away and they didn't say anything. Cut off. The longer ending that Louisa read, or the longer endings that Louisa read to us just now, uh, particularly verses 11 to 20, as they've become known, appear to be a cobbled together sequence of stories based on events that we know from elsewhere, either the other Gospels or from the Book of Acts. And the best estimate of scholars is that uh, these additional endings were added to Mark's Gospel, Mark's original text, sometime, some decades after the Gospel was first written. So it may be helpful just to recap for a moment what we know of the authorship of the Gospels, such as who wrote what and when, as a way of getting our heads around this. I suppose we really ought to start with Paul's letters. You know, Romans, Corinthians, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, and so on. Uh, although in our New Testaments they come after the Gospels and Acts, of course they were written earlier. They were written in the early to mid-50s, so some 20 years or so after the events of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Then comes Mark's Gospel, with its original hanging ending, written in about 60, setting down in writing for the first time the stories of Jesus' life, which up until that point had just been circulating orally, as, as people told each other the stories about Jesus. Uh, we don't really know who Mark was with any great degree of certainty. There is a tradition that he knew Peter, the apostle, and may have got some of his information from Peter. Well, Mark's Gospel was obviously something of an early hit, and it was widely copied and circulated amongst the earliest communities of Christians. But it also became clear fairly early on that there were some problems with it as far as a Gospel goes. After all, Mark's Gospel very clearly describes Jesus as a teacher, but it doesn't actually include very much of what he taught. If you read through Mark's Gospel, you keep getting these references to the Jesus as the teacher, and you'd be left thinking, well, well what did he say? Because it's just not in there. It's also lacking any of the birth stories that we know so well, and it's worth the thought that if we only had Mark's Gospel, we wouldn't have any Christmas, because we wouldn't have any of those stories. And it also, as we have seen last week, doesn't have any resurrection narratives. So, if we only had Mark's Gospel, there'd be none of Jesus' teaching, there'd be no Beatitudes, there'd be no Sermon on the Mount, there would be no Christmas, and there would be very little in the way of Easter. Well, there are a variety of responses to these deficiencies, and probably the most dramatic was that uh, undertaken by a chap who we have come to know as Matthew. And again, we don't really know who he was. 
Um, but about 10 years after Mark's gospel was written, uh, Matthew decided to have a go at rewriting the gospel and including some extra material. So he copied some significant chunks of Mark directly. He quite clearly had a copy of Mark in front of him because he quotes extensively from him. But he added in a bit at the beginning, which we've come to know as the Christmas story, and he added in five large teaching blocks of Jesus' sayings um, plus some resurrection accounts. Well, that was okay as far as it went, but then about 10 years after Matthew's rewriting of Mark, somebody called Luke, a, a friend of Paul's, decided to have a go himself. And using material from both Matthew and Mark, plus some other stuff he'd been researching, he came up with what he clearly hoped would be the definitive version of the Jesus story. And that's what we call Luke's Gospel. Where Luke differed from the other two was that he went on and wrote a part two, which we call the Book of Acts, describing the goings-on in the early church and the adventures of his friend Paul. We're actually planning a series on Acts after Pentecost, so we will come back to Luke's part two in a few weeks. We can only speculate, of course, but it seems likely that if Matthew, Mark, or even John had written their versions of the story of the early church, they might have been as different to the book of Acts as their Gospels are to one another, but we'll never know. I digress slightly, but only slightly here, because sometime after Luke wrote his Gospel and Acts, two further things happened. The first was the emergence of what we call the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, sometime around the year 90 as yet another, and this time radically different, version of the Jesus story. The second thing that happened was that someone decided to try and fix Mark's gospel by adding a new ending onto it. Largely, as I said, cobbled together with bits of material from Matthew and from Luke and from Acts. And where this brings me to, really, is what strikes me as an important question. Why do people feel the need? to keep updating and rewriting the Jesus story. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to call into question the scriptural status or the usefulness of either Matthew or Luke or even John's Gospels. Neither am I going to argue that original is best and argue for the primacy of Mark's Gospel. Sometimes things need improving, or at the very least expanding, and the tradition and witness of the church has been that Matthew and Luke and John got far more right than they got wrong as they retold the Jesus story. But insofar as our passage for this morning is concerned, this cobbled-together miscellany of resurrection appearances that got tacked on to the end of Mark's Gospel some decades after he wrote it, please forgive me if I reserve my judgment as to its usefulness or indeed its inspired nature. In fact, I might even go along with Ched Myers, who suggests that what we have in the additional ending of Mark is the first known example of what has become a long theological tradition which continues to this day, that of betraying the gospel by rewriting it. As we saw last week, and if you weren't here, you can catch up with the sermon by reading it or listening to it online, Mark's Gospel originally and very deliberately ended with a cliffhanger. The tomb is empty, the women are afraid, and what happens next? The invitation inherent in ending in this way is for those of us reading the Gospel to encounter the narrative of resurrection in our own lives. Where's this risen Jesus? He's in your life. 
He's in my life. He's in our life together. That's the message of the original ending of Mark's Gospel. Will the women overcome their fear and encounter the new beginning that the empty tomb opens before them? Will they? Will we? This is the challenge to us of Mark's Gospel as originally conceived. It has no need of stories about Jesus passing magically through walls to suddenly appear in the midst of his friends like some first-century version of a locked-room mystery. It has no need of a shape-shifting zombie Jesus rising from the grave to surprise doubters and tell off unbelievers. It has no need for stories about miraculous healings and unearthly languages or the magical ability to handle dangerous snakes and drink poison to no ill effect. And yet all these and more are here in the additional longer ending. What's going on? Why do people keep feeling the need to update and rewrite the Jesus story? Partly, at least in the case of Mark's longer ending, although I suspect in the case of some of the other Gospels, it's to do with the fact that most of us don't like to live with ambiguity. We like closure. And an open-ended ending can feel like it's no ending at all. There may be something in here about personality type, and it certainly seems to be the case that some people are much less able to cope with ambiguity than others. Some of us crave the neat ending, the closure of certainty, whilst others of us find this restricting and stifling, and we long for the new possibilities inherent in uncertainty. But I think it's more than this. A neat closure to Mark's Gospel allows those of us reading it off the hook. We don't need to ask ourselves whether the risen Jesus is in our own lives, because the question of where is Jesus has been answered. He's there in the text of the longer ending. He's in the locked room. He's back amongst his friends. He's telling them off for their unbelief. He's commissioning them to go out and witness to the gospel, doing all kinds of magical signs as they do so, to prove to the world that Jesus is more powerful than any of the pagan gods or the priests who vied for attention in the ancient world. But maybe it's actually more sinister than this. Maybe this isn't just an ending added by someone who didn't like the ambiguous cliffhanger of the original, you know, a kind of fan fiction ending. Maybe it isn't even just an attempt to release the reader from the uncertainty of having to encounter the risen Christ in their own context. Maybe it isn't even just about galvanizing disciples to courageously witness in the face of seemingly insufferable odds. Ched Myers, again, suggests that what we have here is an imperial rewriting of Mark's gospel, attempting to domesticate the wild lion of Mark's narrative, to tame it and bring it into our own world in ways that comfort us rather than which challenge and disturb us. Think for a moment about the way our society tells its stories. Stories which construct and reinforce the dominant narratives of our world. At the most basic level, we like our films to have a happy ending. It's rare for a box office smash to end on ambiguity. And those that do so are able to get away with it only if they are reinforcing some other aspect of our society's dominant mythology along the way. 
Have you ever come across the Bechdel test? It's named after Alison Bechdel, and it asks whether a work of fiction, such as a book or a movie, features at least two women who are named and who talk to each other about something other than a man. In many ways, it is a test of the extent to which the male-dominated aspects of our culture determine the stories we tell. Recent films that fail the test include The Social Network, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, Avatar, the entire Star Wars trilogy, and the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. It is still, it seems, very much a man's world. And in the longer ending of Mark's Gospel, we see the narrative hijacked away from the named women of Mark's original, Mary and Mary and Salome, who go to the tomb with no man around them and encounter the mysterious man in there and get the commission to go away, and then they're afraid and they don't know what to do. In the additional ending, Mary Magdalene bears witness, but the men don't believe her. And so the narrative moves away from women and back into the world of dominant named men who get their own series of resurrection accounts. And it's the men, not the women, in the additional longer ending who are commissioned to go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. The gender-inclusive echo of Jesus' ministry, still present in Mark's original, becomes appropriated to the cause of patriarchy by the end of the first century. And this is reflected in the longer ending, the additional ending of the gospel. And the trajectory towards two millennia of male-led and male-dominated Christianity is set well and truly in train. The alternative shorter ending even goes so far as to name Peter, who is presented as the restored head of the community after his denial of Jesus just a few days earlier. Peter, of course, being the one who comes to be revered as the head of the church in Rome, at the heart of the empire and at the heart of power. Patriarchy wins and wins again as the gospel is rewritten in favour of the powerful. But it's not just the suppression of gender inclusion that betrays the darker intentions of the additional endings of Mark's gospel. The tendency for subversive radical discipleship to be rewritten as orthodox compliance and power dominance is visible in other ways as well. Firstly, let's think about the balance between doubt and faith. Now, I don't know about you, but my experience of faith is one of faith held through profound doubt. I don't believe that it is wrong to doubt. I don't believe that it is sinful to wrestle with unbelief. If anything, I'm always rather suspicious and even a little bit afraid of the kind of Christianity that leaves no room for honest doubt and integrity-filled unbelief. And it's this honest wrestling that we meet in Mark's Gospel. We encounter ourselves in Mark's Gospel, in his failure-ridden portrait of the disciples. We find ourselves identifying in Mark's narrative with the unnamed father of the sick child who cries out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And all of this is undone in the additional ending, where three times in 11 verses the disciples are criticised for their unbelief. We're told in the additional ending 
that salvation is for the one who believes and is baptised, while the one who unbelieves is condemned. This is fundamentalism taking over the religion of grace. Comply or be damned is the subtext here, and the Gospels wrestling with the grey areas of faith is undone. The cross taken down this path becomes a sword or an emblem on a battle shield as Christianity continues its journey towards imperial domination. And still this process continues as people of faith in our own world constantly rewrite the grace of the Jesus story to suit their own aspirations for power and certainty. Believe or be damned is heard too often from the pulpits of our world, or worse yet, believe what I tell you to believe or be damned. This remains the inauthentic hallmark of so much of what seeks to pass for faithful Christianity. Give me a church of honest doubters wrestling their demons with integrity any day. Maybe that's why I'm here. But secondly, building on the betrayal of doubt and the assertion of certainty, we also meet in the longer ending the tendency to reduce a lived relationship with the risen Christ to the status of magical wonders as the guarantee of belief. The ending tells its readers in verse 17 that these signs will accompany those who believe. So, first you've got to believe, and then you've got to do these things to prove it. Speaking in tongues is listed. Have you ever been in a church where you're told if you don't speak in tongues, you're not a true believer? That's the longer ending of Mark's Gospel. Casting out demons. Been in contexts where that has also been very much part of what it is to be a Christian, and if you're not involved in that, you're not a Christian. Picking up snakes. Drinking poison. Never been around either of those. Laying hands on and healing the sick. Yeah, yeah, I've been to healing meetings. The assumption underlying this list is that being a Christian means demonstrating visible power. The powerlessness of the cross and the mystery of the empty tomb are exchanged for a grasping after power and the desire to access magic at the level of the pagan temple priests and wonder workers of the first century. Every show of strength in the name of the pagan gods has to be matched by those who would follow Jesus, demonstrating that they have similar magical abilities. It's just like a competition. Mine's more powerful than yours. It's like Moses before Pharaoh, with Pharaoh's magicians matching Moses trick for trick until all the children are dead. And whilst we may laugh at those in the Bible Belt of the United States who, taking this literally, practice snake handling and poison drinking as part of their religious devotion, we need to guard ourselves carefully against the desire to exchange servanthood and rejection for power and influence. 
when Christianity in any culture seeks visible forms of power, it rewrites the story of the one who came to suffer and die, to subvert all narratives of power. I'm just going to say this. I think that any claim that we are or should be a Christian country is a betrayal of the cross. And any attempt to claim cultural values having a gospel mandate is a distortion of the gospel itself. But the additional ending not only exchanges honest doubt for blind faith, it not only exchanges service for dominance, it also banishes Christ from the earth and confines him to heaven. Mark's original ending deliberately left the women seeking their risen Lord in the ordinariness of their lives. They're told he's gone on ahead of you to Galilee, go and meet him there. And this is the message for us. Where is the risen Christ? He's here this morning in our lives. He's there tomorrow morning at work, in our families, wherever we are. The new ending, the additional ending of Mark's Gospel, elevates Jesus up to the heavens and sets him on the right hand of God on high. The servant Jesus, known in community, becomes the king of the cosmos, He becomes a kind of Jesus alternative to the emperor on the throne in Rome. And we're in the world of competition. Who's got the highest throne? The emperor or Jesus? Well, clearly Jesus. There he is, right hand of God. You think you're in Rome, Mr. Emperor. Well, not so big and powerful now, are you? And of course, that path takes Christianity straight into the root of seeking power, and so it becomes the imperial church 300 and something years later. And so Christendom is born and faith and Christianity and state enter into their uneasy alliance which haunts us to this day. This is the ultimate will to power. Simple faith and servant living give way to imperial aspiration and dominance. And so to return to my question of why people feel the need to rewrite the Jesus story, I think I'm beginning to sense an answer. We do it because we're afraid of weakness and we desire strength. We do it because we want to be assured of our rightness, even if that is at the cost of another person's wrongness. And in our own ways, we continue to rewrite the story. As we draw our battle lines, to rule some out so that we can rule ourselves in. As we grasp after power and influence. As we worship the king above all kings rather than the servant of all. And yet through all of these rewrites, the challenge of Mark's empty tomb still echoes through. Where is Jesus? The resurrection is not the answer to everything, it turns out. Rather, it is the first question of the rest of our lives. We meet the risen Christ as we follow him, in faithful, costly, servant-hearted discipleship. This, I suggest, is the truth of resurrection. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.